Shattered Bonds, a podcast that tells the story of a family's journey to redemption, a family that has been torn apart by secrets, lies, betrayal, and violence, a family that has to confront the past and the present and find a way to heal and reconnect. It's an exploration of the human condition, of the power of love and forgiveness, of the resilience of the human spirit. It's a podcast that will make you laugh, cry, think, and feel. This is the finale episode, Reunion by the Sea, Letting Go of the Past. There is snow on the beach. The ocean is a cold gray sheet. Underfoot there is no sand, only rocks. The beach a three-mile horseshoe curving outward, flanked on one side by towering clay cliffs. When they were kids, Scott and David would collect beach glass from among the pebbles here. They would bring the faded gems home in their pockets and dump them out onto the kitchen table. They would wash them in a colander and present them like jewels. Their parents kept a jar on the mantelpiece, a treasure chest of broken beach emeralds. This was Bailey's Island, Maine, the opposite of New York City. Sleepy, bucolic, slow. It was their escape, their fresh air fund. Every summer for a month, they left the confines of New York. They escaped the concrete labyrinth and drove north. For four weeks, the boys lived outdoors among the poplars and saplings, crouched down in the lanky seaweed, hunting for crabs. They went barefoot. Their hair grew long. They went days without putting on a shirt. When you're young, a month can seem like a lifetime, all those lazy days stretching together. When you're young, time is irrelevant. There is so much of it. It spills from your cupped hands and tumbles to the ground. They would lie in the grass and stare up at the sky, listening to the sound the wind made rustling the tops of the trees. In the afternoon, they would ride their bikes from one end of the island to the other and back. They would sit in the shade of a tree and read Tarzan books. Robert Heinlein, the stainless steel rat. There was a hidden fortress next to the house, a womb in the trees, inside which, if you climbed under the low-hanging branches, you found yourself in a shaded hollow, completely hidden from the outside world, the floor a musty weft of pine needles. This was where their wars were planned, their secret mission mapped out in the dirt, dreams of enemy soldiers in their bunkers, and then the stealthy deployment, two boys crawling through the tall glass, reconnoitering the nearby houses. Their parents sat on the back porch and read. The pace of the world was the resting heartbeat of a sleeping dog. They listened to the radio, then went inside to fix lunch. In the stillness of the country, there was nothing but the sound of the breeze, carrying with it the distant cries of seagulls. From the porch, they could see the ocean. It lay just a few hundred feet away, down the winding path, through the blueberry patch, and then left through the gnarled crabapple trees to the sloping dirt path that wound down twenty feet to the rocky outcroppings of Pebble Beach. You could be there in minutes, seconds if you ran. If you kicked up your ten-year-old heels and took off, the tall grass whipping at your bare legs, the salt air burning your lungs. There were gardener snakes out there and tennis balls they'd lost. Birds hopped through the weeds, hunting for worms. Once the brothers had stood at the edge of the cliff and thrown fish heads into the air. In seconds, they were descended upon by seagulls. Their parents watched from the porch, drinks in hand as their sons disappeared into a fluttering cloud of white. It was a feeding frenzy, an orgy of indeterminate character. Were the boys in danger? Were they being absorbed into some exotic avian tribe? Watching, their parents waited for them to break free, to take flight. 
If you ran in bare feet, scanning the ground for rocks and pricklers. If you scrambled down the grassy hill and stepped gingerly onto the vertical shale outcroppings, the stones sheared and jagged like the teeth of a comb. You could jump the last few feet into the hot sand, which existed only in tiny pockets between wave-smooth rocks. You could stand panting on the beach and listen to the crashing waves. In front of you was a field of seaweed floating in the middle tide. It was a verdant blackish green, all tentacles and bulbous air pods. Under it lay all kinds of life, hermit crabs and barnacles and periwinkles. Flip the seaweed back, turn over a rock, and all manner of crustaceans would scramble forth. Scott and David's parents would send them down here sometimes in the evening to collect seaweed for the lobster pot. If you walked far enough, there was a rock shaped like a boat that you could stand on and pretend to be captain. There were boulders you could climb, digging your naked toes into worn pockets and pulling yourself up by your fingertips. From the top, you could pretend to be a giant. You could stand on the beach and know in your heart that the summer would never end, that you could be a kid forever. It was true, because you would make it true. This is what Scott thinks as he climbs down the rocky path today. It is 20 plus years later. He's a 35-year-old man, making the trek one last time with his 37-year-old brother. They are both carrying cardboard boxes. It is February 18th. The air is a creaky, low-pressure gray, clouds hanging just out of reach. They've spent the last few days in a daze. There have been hospitals to visit, funeral homes. There have been forms to sign, decisions to be made. What should they do with their mother's body? Should they continue their journey or fall back, regroup? After everything that had happened, it would have surprised no one if the two brothers had given up and parted ways, if Scott had gotten on a plane and flown home, leaving David to deal with the mess he'd made. But instead, the two brothers clung together. After the emergency room, after the endless wait for a verdict, a stroke, their mother had a massive stroke and died where she sat, still clutching the paper record of her birth, the boys returned to their hotel, where Scott packed his things and moved into David's room. Tracy had already been there, had already packed up and left with the kids. There was no note, no bitter farewell jab. In her wake, she left only judgment and silence. David and Scott sat in that silence for two days. What was there to say? Their mother had died. David had proven to be a polygamist. Scott had shown up at their father's memorial with his brother's second wife. And now, it was over. It was all over. And they thought if they just sat still and didn't say anything, if they didn't hope or dream or wish, then nothing else would happen. No more calamities, no more asteroids falling from the sky, no more self-inflicted wounds. If they just sat still and didn't try to do anything, then maybe the world would let them be. For 24 hours, they didn't leave the room. They stayed in bed and slept. The world had proven to be bigger than they could handle. It had risen up over them and crashed down with deafening thunder. They lay on their beds in the climate-controlled stillness of their room and stared at the ceiling. They were exhausted. They were in shock. They turned off their phones. They had been humbled by the magnitude of their tragedy. It literally took their breath away. So they made themselves very small and burrowed down into their bedding and they waited for the worst to pass. In the middle of the night, Scott could hear his brother crying. 
He didn't try to comfort him. There was no comfort. This was the world they lived in. Their parents were dead. Scott and David had gone mad with sorrow and stumbled into mayhem. Here was the ruin they had found. To look for comfort would be a further sign of madness. Instead, they tried to accept the things they'd experienced, the crimes they'd committed, the pain they'd suffered. On Wednesday, they got out of bed and packed. They did so without speaking, both knowing somehow that it was time to go. When David picked up the phone to call the front desk and arrange for their rental car, it was the first words he had spoken in 36 hours. His voice sounded weak and apologetic. He wouldn't speak again for six more hours. In silence, they rolled their suitcases to the elevator. Scott dragged his mother's valise, red scarf still tied to its handle. He hauled her black turtlenecks and her smuggled packs of cigarettes. He carried her pants and shoes, her jewelry and glasses. They put them in the trunk of the rental car and drove west across the park to the funeral home. There they picked up the box that held their mother's ashes and put it in the back seat next to the box that held their father's. It was a twisted variation on the family vacation, children in front, parents in back. David slipped the car into gear, pulled out into traffic. He took 10th Avenue north, got on the West Side Highway. They drove up through the Bronx, past the Cloisters. They were heading for Maine. It was a seven-hour trip with no traffic. The road was still icy in places, the trees loaded down with snow. Somewhere around Connecticut, Scott spoke for the first time. I feel like one of us should smoke a cigarette, he said. You know, for old times' sake. David put on his blinker, changed lanes. He had a hard time looking at Scott without feeling waves of shame. There was the cut on Scott's cheek, the tape on his nose, his two black eyes. David knew he could never make it up to him, to anyone. It is a humbling feeling to realize you've ruined everything. Such utter destruction is no mean feat. It must be worked at with intensity and perseverance. The follow-through it takes to destroy your own life is enormous. Driving north, David revisited all the opportunities he'd had to take a different path. So many moments he could have turned back, but he didn't. The thought kept him awake last night, tossing, turning. Scott was snoring gently in the next bed. As quietly as possible, David turned on the TV. They were playing Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It was the scene at the dinner table where Richard Dreyfus keeps putting more and more mashed potatoes on his plate. The shape they make reminds him of something. He's crazed, obsessed. He smooths the potatoes into a mountain, takes his fork and slices off the top. His daughter starts to cry. He still has a sunburn on one half of his face. His children are afraid of him. His wife doesn't understand him. David watched the scene without sound. He thought, I know exactly how he feels. He recognized the husband's fevered state, saw in his sculpting the true sign of his own madness. A man who would take a second wife, who would, as the walls closed in, try to recycle himself through God, to skip the reckoning and go straight to forgiveness. He is a true lunatic. David thinks about Tracy, his children. All they ever wanted was to love him. And yet living among them, he felt so alone. His family was right there, reaching out, and he couldn't feel them. And he thought the problem was them. But it wasn't. It was him, all along. He drives the speed limit. It feels good to get out on the open road, to leave New York behind. He is afraid to think too far ahead, 
There are craters up there, dark tunnels with no light in sight. Are you okay? His brother asks. Compared to what? Scott doesn't answer. This is how it goes. For the next few hours, they make brief attempts at conversation, neither of them pushing too hard. In Massachusetts, Scott turns on the radio, finds a rock station, and for a few miles this feels good, to have something aggressive and quick blaring from the stereo. But then the music begins to feel like an assault, and David turns the radio down, then off. I liked her, says Scott. Who? Joy, says Scott. If you're going to have a second wife, I mean, she seemed like a good choice. David winces. He can't bring himself to think about that moment, that nauseating instant of recognition, his two families' tragic all-at-once collision. The chaotic clusterfuck of it flashes through his mind from time to time like rape, and he has to cover his eyes. Tracy. Your husband? He's my husband. Joy. What do you mean? David, what is she talking about? At the White Horse Tavern, the whole thing unfolded with such painful clarity, such clean precision, he was struck mute by the awful beauty of it. He knelt on the floor of the bar with his brother's blood on his hands, staring up at their stricken faces, his wives, his children. David? Daddy? All they wanted was for him to explain, to tell them that what seemed like an epic betrayal was really just a bad joke. But what could he say? The words just wouldn't come. And then in some sick reprieve, he will revisit for years in therapy. A scream came from the back of the room, and he turned to find his mother dead. Punishment. It felt like punishment. In one second, he went from having two wives and a mother to being womanless, childless. And he can't even be mad. It's all his fault. I am such an asshole, he mutters. Scott nods. I am such an asshole, David repeats. Louder, David yells. I am such an asshole! Scott studies his brother. He finds in David's ruin, his humiliation, a kind of relief. He loves his brother more for his flaws, accepts him, now that he is human, now that he's fallible, weak. This was all Scott was looking for. A correction, a lessening, an unmasking. The emperor has no clothes. He is human and hurting just like the rest of us. Feel better? He asks. David doesn't answer. He adjusts the rearview mirror so that he can see the boxes that hold his parents' ashes. The whole thing boggles the mind. There are no metaphors, no advice books. They are past the point of no return. Everything is white now, empty. Hungry? He asks Scott. Scott shrugs. They haven't eaten more than a packet of peanuts between them in two days. Should we stop at that seafood place in Portsmouth? David asks. Like in the good old days? We could hit the liquor store in New Hampshire. David shakes his head. I was thinking more clam chowder than beer. Scott looks out the window. One year when they showed up at the house, there was an egret standing on the back porch, a tall white bird with spindly legs. It betrayed no interest in leaving. They would go to bed at night and wake up in the morning, and there it would be, standing on the back porch drinking water from a dish. After two days, they put it in the car and drove to the marshes. Only there did it remember it was a bird and fly away. You should call Tracy, he says. I'm afraid to, David says after a minute. 
You should call anyway. David nods. I'm sorry, he says. Not to me, to her. I mean for the... He gestures. Hitting. Whatever, you've hit me before. You'll hit me again, we're brothers. You're just lucky you sucker punched me. If I'd seen it coming, I'd have knocked you into Sunday. David switches lanes, accelerates around a station wagon. How is it possible, he wonders, that you found her, the one woman? Scott thinks about it. Just lucky, I guess. David sighs. Just because he doesn't like the way God operates doesn't mean he has completely given up his faith. If you'd asked him two days ago, he would have said, absolutely, I'm an atheist again. But last night, like a flower in a lava field, his faith started to blossom, rising from the ashes. No one was more surprised than him. The thought that fed it is this. You don't get to choose the God you believe in. You don't get to decide to be reverent based on whether things are going poorly or well. You have been selfish for too long. You can't control your God. You don't get to dictate under which circumstances you will believe. God doesn't make deals, and he doesn't like to be threatened, especially not by someone as arrogant and fault-ridden as you. It is only in recognizing your true powerlessness that you can restore your hope. Faith is a promise you make to yourself. Because lying in the rock-bottom abyss of his despair, he finally realized what his father meant when he said, Stop it! He meant stop hiding. Stop pretending everything's okay. He meant stop putting up walls and acting like none of this is affecting you. Stop lying. Stop running. Stop it, he said, his eyes flaming. And what he was really saying was stop shirking your responsibilities, even as you claim that it's your responsibilities that make it impossible for you to help us. Stop fighting so hard. Stop pretending to be invulnerable. We're your family. We are all you have. Thank you, David tells Scott. He doesn't have to say for what. They both know. Thanks for not leaving me, for being here, for seeing this through. No problem, his brother tells him. For both brothers, it feels like a huge storm has finally passed. They can't bring themselves to say it out loud, but the truth is, it's over. They will not have to carry their mother through her long dying years, will not have to watch as she falters and slowly suffocates. It has been seven years, and for the first time they can remember, there is no sickness ahead of them. There are no agonizing decisions, no brutal sacrifices. If they think about it too long, they feel giddy, a dizzying mixture of joy and sorrow brewing in their hearts. There is that buoyant, unreal feeling that comes from finally dropping the heaviness you have carried all these years. You feel unbalanced, fragile. You walk with your arms out. Scott and David are still reeling from the speed of it, the suddenness. But the reality is slowly setting in. They have reached the end of the road here on the East Coast, back where it all began. And now all that's left is to say goodbye. They drive north through tree-lined states, reaching Bailey's Island at 4 p.m. They rise up over the great stone bridge from Orr's Island, having made the turn off near Brunswick. Everything looks familiar. There is the sensation of driving into the past. Neither of them has been here since they were teenagers, and yet both of them could close their eyes and retrace every road, every field. 
They can picture the walk to the general store, past the church that had the rummage sales every Sunday in the basement. You take that road back past Cook's Field, and there on your right is the jolting blue of Mackerel Cove. Keep going, and you reach Land's End and the turnoff of the Great Steps, a natural rock formation that looks like the staircase of a giant. It is here where they stood when they were kids, watching the waves pound the stone, imaginations engaged, picturing the colossus that must have strode from the sea, climbing those stairs onto dry land. They could imagine him stepping from island to island, his massive head way up in the clouds. The crash of the waves echoed the jarring concussion of his footfalls. Coming over the rise of the bridge, seeing the lobster boats bobbing in the water, Scott feels unexpectedly small. They are here, suddenly, back at the place where their adulthood first emerged from the sea. It will all be different. He knows it before he sees the new townhouses that dot the landscape. This place has not survived intact. In two decades, the economy has boomed and busted, and in that time, people from New York and Boston and Portland have built their dream vacation homes. They've installed swimming pools and cluttered up the open spaces. The sleepy coastal island with its small-time lobster trade has become just another weekend retreat for city folk. In order to have the moment they have envisioned, David and Scott will have to do this with their eyes closed, living in their memories. David drives the island's main road. Everything is different and the same at once. It's spooky. And though they had planned to stay the night, seeing it, they both decide independently to push for a return to the mainland. Once they have done what they came to do, they will head back. This is not a journey for reminiscence, after all. It is a bon voyage. And though you may stand around on the dock watching once the ship is pulled away, those who have been left behind do not linger. They do not stay the night. Here? asks David. And Scott says, yes. David turns left, climbs the short hill. It is the middle of February, and most of the vacation homes are empty, driveways abandoned, houses locked down for the winter. The short street jogs left at the rosehip bushes. David slows, pulls into an asphalt driveway. Theirs was the house second to the end. A thin layer of snow covers the earth around it, crunching under their feet as they climb from the car. The air is chilly, the sky gray, and they can see the white clouds of their breath. They stand for a minute listening to the silence, the quiet ticking of the engine, and the far-off echo of the waves. They put on an addition, says Scott, looking at the house. He remembers the wicker rocking chair that used to creak in the living room in the middle of the night, as if a ghost were shifting, trying to find a more comfortable position. Let's go, says David. He leans into the back seat, pulls out his father's ashes. Scott opens the rear passenger side door, grabs his mother's. They walk around the side of the house, and suddenly there it is, the ocean. It is like walking straight into a photograph, a memory. They stand for a minute, staring out, the angled field, the sudden cliff, and beyond it, the flat plain of the Atlantic. Everything else may have changed, but this moment, this view, is just as they remembered. What do we do now? David asks and the question seems somehow larger than the immediate future. It is a question about life. What do we do now that our parents have died? What do we do now that the women we loved have left us? 
What do we do now as men in our late thirties who have been suddenly left out in the open, exposed? How do we start again? To the beach, says Scott. They descend through the brittle grass, stepping over crusty piles of snow. It is the first time either of them has been here in the winter. There's a grandeur to it, a majesty to the landscape, the angry, roiling ocean. Scott imagines what it must have been like for women to watch the seas, waiting for their husbands to return. The wind picks up. He tightens his collar, stumbles down the hill. Behind him he can hear David humming, but he can't make out the tune. They wind down through the woods, ducking under frosted spiderwebs, and emerge onto the hill overlooking the beach. The waves are louder now, pounding in rhythm. They are two men in suits, carrying boxes, like Bibles. It is a funeral procession, but also an act of trespass. They are boys who don't know how to cry, who have taught themselves to be strong, and in their blind delusion of strength have driven headlong into walls. They are humble now, regretful. They have come here to land's end, to the edge of the ocean, carrying the remains of their past in boxes. All they want is a chance to do it over. But time doesn't work that way. You cannot go back and do things again. All you can hope for is improvement in the future. All you can hope for is change. Please let things change. It is madness to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And yet what if this is the only way you know how to live? They climb down the shaly outcroppings, jumping and slipping to the rocks below. They can feel the cold of the ocean emanating from the water. It fills the air, tightens their skin. Somewhere out there, predators lurk under the dark surface waiting to be fed. Below them is a bottomless black. The ocean is where we all end up sooner or later, thinks Scott, sinking down into oblivion. Here, says David, holding up his box. Scott looks around. It is all happening so fast. Let's walk a ways, he says. They tread along the coastline, scrambling over broken rocks. Everything feels familiar. The sea, the beach, the cliff. It is they who have changed. Scott is the first to spot some. A piece of beach glass glinting at his feet. He stops, reaches down, picks it up. Fifty cents for blue, he says. A dollar for red, says David. This is what their father used to pay them. Green glass was everywhere, brown, it was blue and red you never saw. They would spend hours scouring the beach, trying to raise money for comic books, candy bars. Now as they walk with their parents' ashes, they find themselves watching the beach. They are looking for the smooth remains of bottles, shiny coins of broken glass worn smooth by the sea. This is what happens when things break. The pieces separate, scatter. They are battered by the elements, buffed and polished smooth, then deposited on far-off beaches. All your hopes and dreams. The boys walk along uneven ground hunting for treasure. Dried seaweed crackles under their shoes. Driftwood lies where it is washed up. Jagged styrofoam buoys and the frayed webbing of busted lobster traps. There's an earthy stink to the muddy clay that Scott thought he had forgotten. It takes him back. He's six, he's seven, he's eight. They are both of them reliving those idle days of summer roaming, afternoon turning to evening without the sun ever going down. They would run wild over the island, 
lost in some invented adventure, waiting for their parents to call them home. Now look at them, cold and shivering in their matching black suits. They are neither young nor old. Instead, they hover somewhere in between, like a ball tossed in the air, in that moment when it is no longer rising but has yet begun to fall. That moment of instantaneous velocity when the ball hangs motionless. This is how they are, no longer boys, and yet not fully men. But what else do you call a boy who has survived his father, his mother? What else do you call a boy with children of his own? Who is a man if not him? David bends and picks up a rock. He tosses it out into the waves. It falls with a satisfying plunk. He's trying to imagine how he can fix things, get his family back. He's trying to formulate a plan. If he thinks about it too much, he feels dizzy, overwhelmed. There is still so much healing left to do. He knows this, though. It will require humility and perseverance. It will take time. And yet what else is time there for, if not to slog through the lonely act of reestablishment, if not to work piece by piece to rebuild the things you love? He will do whatever it takes. Do you think? He begins, then stops. What? Says Scott, hunting for a good throwing rock. Do you think you could call Joy? Scott thinks about this. If he called her, what would he say? He could ask her if she still planned to keep her promise. He could tell her that what happened in that bar didn't matter. He could tell her not to let it make her bitter. She could laugh in his face. He could say the words that lay hidden in his heart, which are, I will love you. I will be your supermarket man. I will make things right. You helped me, he could tell her. Now let me help you. He finds a good rock, fist-sized, heavy. He puts down his mother's ashes, takes a few quick steps, and hurls it into the ocean. The wave head explodes as if from a gunshot. David lays down the box he carries. He finds a bigger rock, throws it. Scott scours the ground. The challenge has been given. They stand there for an hour throwing weight into the ocean. The stones get bigger, the splashes deeper. Soon they are working together, lifting 50-pound stones and dropping them into the surf. Their shoes are wet, their pants soaked to the knees. They are returning the rocks to the sea. Take it back, they are saying, as if they could reassemble the fortress from which the rocks have fallen, as if they could rebuild something massive just by putting the stones back where they belong. They throw their shoulders into the side of a boulder and try to roll it. It is unspoken, this mission. They will gather the hardness from beneath their feet. They will clear the beach of its wounded. Their suits fray and tear. The air around them fills with a deep hiccup of weight descending into water. They will stay here until they return every stone to the sea, until they erect a wall between themselves and the hurt. They will build a tower into the clouds, and then, carrying their parents' ashes, they will climb to its highest point. They will stand in the air, swaying miles above the earth. Birds will pass below them. Planes will fly in the downward distance. And still they will climb higher, ascending into the stratosphere. They will keep climbing until they reach the afterlife. And there, they will deliver their burdens. They will tell the gatekeeper, take them. Love them. They were good people, despite their vices. They were our parents. Their weakness was their beauty, their longing, 
their hunger, their fear. Do not leave them by the side of the road. Do not judge them just because they didn't believe in God. They believed in each other, and that was enough. They believed in us. The boys will build their tower. They will climb high into the sky, and there they will finally let it go. All their pain and grief, all their guilt and anger. And when they come back down, they will be so much lighter that they will float like feathers on the breeze. They will fall like laughter and settle gently to the ground. They will lie there breathing in the soothing calm of the ocean air, the waves lapping gently at their feet. And the water will be warm, and the sky will be blue, and it will be summer again, summer forever. This is all any of us can wish for, to be unburdened, to forgive those who have hurt us, to set ourselves free.